to the throne of Almighty God this morning. Thank you for your ministry. I want you to open your Bibles with me uh, back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, New Testament book, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll remind you, last week we began looking at a series I've affectionately titled American Idols, and today we're going to hear Paul say, flee from idols, flee from idolatry. And to run away from it, to get away from it. Remind you of what St. Augustine said in our last message. How he defined idolatry. And he said, idolatry is worshipping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. And so that, that definition as we think about idolatry, we think about how we can get caught up in devoting things that, that belong to the Lord, that should be devoted to the Lord. We can give them over to idols. And here's the biblical truth I want us to see this morning. Idols steal life. Take it from you. But Jesus gives life. Amen. And that's how we know the difference between anything that's not worthy of our worship. Idols suck the life right out of you. They take your time and your energy and your effort and everything that should be devoted to the Lord and they just suck it right out of you and they give nothing back. And that's the opposite of God. All throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament, you hear the Lord talking about idols and how idols are robbing the people, stealing them of their joy, stealing them of their lives, stealing them of everything that's good and wonderful, robbing that out of their life. Well, on the other hand, Jesus said He came not to receive things from us. He didn't come to be served. What did He come to do? He came to serve and to give His life, a ransom for many. Jesus gives life. Now, Paul warned the Corinthians about participating in idolatry through eating meat sacrificed to idols. That's what the text is about today. But I want you to understand that it's about a much broader picture than that. Because eating or drinking, that's just one activity of our lives that we can devote to idols. But what he's saying is that none of the activity of our lives should be devoted to idols. All right? So I want us, we're going to skip down toward the end of our text this morning. We're going to read beginning in verse 31. So if you found your place there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, go ahead and stand with me and we'll read from God's word together. Verse 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, right, that's how we know that this text doesn't simply apply to eating or drinking. Notice what he says. He says, whatever you do. Do it unto idols? No. Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And in chapter 11, verse 1, goes on to say, Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit 
who is in this place. We thank you for the conviction that we have as we come together because we know, Lord, that the chastisement that we receive, Lord, it it is for our good. It's because we're not illegitimate, but we belong to you. So, Lord, even if you're correcting us this morning, if you're rebuking us this morning, let us see that as the work of Almighty God, cleansing us and making us into the image of Christ. Lord, if we've come to this place in our hearts, don't condemn us and they, we stand before you clean. I pray, Lord, that we would give you the glory for that, Lord, because all glory belongs to you. We are who we are because of the blood of Jesus. And Lord, today, if there's one in this place, Lord, that doesn't have a relationship with you, Lord, they don't know you as their Lord and their Savior, I pray that today, Lord, the work of your Holy Spirit would quicken their hearts, Lord, that they would hear the gospel, they would receive it gladly, they would be saved. We pray this in the strong and matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. If you recall, last week we talked about how idolatry begins with that very first step of whenever you're tempted, you're tempted to sin, and rather than walking away from that situation, turning away and saying no to the temptation, you embrace the temptation, and then you commit the sin. That's the very beginning of idolatry. And then if you stay on that road too long, you will find yourself bowing down and worshiping Something that is not God. And then Paul offers this, this dire warning to the Corinthians about how idolatry is it's much more sinister than you think. And we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But it's, it's deeper and it goes a lot further into the realm of spiritual things than you really think whenever you begin to devote things that belong to God to something else. So Paul instructed the Corinthian church to flee from idolatry. I want you to look again with me. Uh, back up, we read toward the end of chapter 10, but back up to verse 14. He says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The word there, flee, is the word fugo. And we, we get our English word, we derive our English word fugitive from this word. And to the Corinthians, that must have sounded a little silly. For Paul to instruct the Corinthians to run away, to flee from idols. And if you think of their context, yeah, that would be silly because there were idols on every corner. The Corinthians lived among idols just as the Athens did as well. And and Paul noticed that their city was so full of idols that it broke his heart. But ours is today too. And if we're going to take this text seriously, it's going to mean that we really have to close our eyes and turn our heads and walk away from a lot of situations that Christians today simply embrace. It means we're going to have to live differently, folks, than you and I live today. And I say you and I seriously because I'm preaching to myself today as much as I'm preaching to you. We are surrounded by idolatry in our, in our culture. And if we're going to get serious about fleeing idols, it means there's a lot that's got to get chopped out of our life, cut out of our life, removed from us. Well, Paul gives us about four reasons why we should flee idolatry. 
And that's what I want us to look at together, beginning in verse 14 again. Remember, he says, flee from idols, from idolatry, excuse me. Flee from idolatry. I need to be careful there on that point because Paul doesn't say flee idols. He says flee idolatry. Not that we should be scared because he doesn't want the Corinthian church to be afraid of idols. He wants them to know that they don't deserve worship and to walk away from them. So flee idolatry. But he, gets, he says in verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Now, Paul is going to give us a couple of examples, a couple of reasons why we are to flee idolatry. But the first one is, you become what you behold. Now, I've kind of borrowed those words from the English poet William Blake, but this is true for us. We become like what we turn our faces toward. So if we're, if we're approaching idols, we're viewing idols, turning toward idols, then we're going to become like them. And we know that this is true in the natural world as well because children, what do they do? They pick up the mannerisms and the inflections, even the body language from their parents, right? They begin to kind of act like a... And then whenever I see my children doing those things, I think, stop doing that. And I realize I do that. Couples who have been married for a long time often begin to look alike, right? And some of you are looking at each other. You kind of do. And, and, and there's actually some scientific research that kind of backs this up, by the way. You spend enough time looking at a certain person, you begin to kind of mimic the way that they, their facial expressions and all of those things. And over time, your face begins to look like their face. I mean, I can hardly tell the Jacksons apart sometimes. <laughs> Miss Ruth walks in here and I think, oh, well, no, I'm picking. But they've been together a long time. Transplants to another part of the country frequently pick up the accent of that region. So we know in the natural world this is true, but Paul mentions the Lord's Supper to begin with, and he says, listen, when you partake in the body and the blood of Christ, you are taking on His likeness as you do that. And he says, you are participating with Christ. And the, the Greek word there is kinonia. We get the word fellowship from that word, but literally what it means is sharing in or, or participating in. When you partake of the Lord's Supper, you are participating in the ministry of Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection. You're becoming part of Him. And then Paul, not only does he mention that where Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me and you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes and all of those things. And you look like Christ in that. But he also talks about how when we gather together in the body of Christ, the church, you begin to become one with the church. Not just one with Jesus, but one with the church as well. He goes on and he says, um, he says, because there is one bread, verse 17, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So what he's saying is, even though the Levites are offering the sacrifice, whenever the children of Israel 
ate the, the meat of the sacrifice, they became participants in those who were offering the sacrifice. In other words, when we get together and we worship together, we become one in Christ. We participate with each other. And this is Paul's first reason for never devoting that type of worship, that type of attention, that type of time to something that's less than worthy. And this is what he goes on to say. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that idol is anything? No imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And then he goes on down and says in verse 21, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, I'm going to make another point from that. But the point is, Paul is saying the reason that we cannot be Chasing after gods, other gods out there, is because we will become like them. We'll become one with them. They'll begin to have influence over us. And we'll take on the image of those things out there. Instead, we should be becoming more and more like Christ by beholding Him And spending time with Him. Now, the same warning, this isn't a new warning because Ezekiel deals with the same issue with the people of Israel and so do other prophets. But Ezekiel 14, 6-8, listen to what he says. The house of Israel had taken their idols into their hearts and set them before their faces. They put their idols in their homes and they put them in their windows and they put them on their tables. And the Lord says in verse 6, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. And then he goes on to say, For anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. And I will set my face against that man. In other words, God saying, if you're going to turn your back on me and face idols instead, I, I am going to set my face against you. That doesn't mean, that's not a good thing. Because what that's referring to is the judgment of God. I'm going to judge that. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people. And you shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, you'll know that I am the only God. But what would God do with the idols? What's he going to do with the idols? He's going to set his face against those idols. He's going to make those idols a byword and cut them off from the people And so the one who bows down and worships some idol, they're going to be removed from the presence of God. Acts 17 and verse 16, Paul was waiting for his companions in Athens and his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. See, Paul looked out upon the city of Athens and he saw nothing but idols. And his spirit was provoked within him. And what did he begin to do? He began to attempt to lead those Athenians out of their worship of idols and proclaim to them the one true God. Here's a good question. If you're devoting time and energy and effort to a lesser thing, and you can just fill in the blank, whatever it may be, 
and you're spending time with that, how can you lead someone else out of their idolatry? Well, how do we begin to behold these things? Here's some gateways, okay? These are just gateways or doorways for you to begin beholding idols. Books and magazines and websites. The programs and movies that we watch. The music and podcasts that we listen to. The kind of entertainment that we choose. The conversations that we participate in in person, and on social media. Now Paul, Paul would say this later, he'll pick up on this later in 2 Corinthians. But after the children of Israel had committed idolatry with the golden calf, you remember the story? Moses is up on the mountain with God, he's receiving the Ten Commandments, and he's, he's got the tablets in his hand, and, and God says to him, go down to your people. <laughs> You remember that from last year? Your your people, not my people, your people are acting a fool. Go down there. I'm going to wipe them out. That's what the Lord says. Well, Moses goes down and he sees what's taking place and they're worshiping the golden calf. Moses throws the Ten Commandments down and breaks them. Then when he climbs back up the mountain to meet with God again after that whole incident and the nation is cleansed of the idolatry, he goes back up to the mountain and he beholds the the glory of God up on Mount Sinai. You remember that story? And then God says to him, this time, bro, you got, since you broke the ones I created, you get to chisel out the Ten Commandments this time. That's interesting. You can go back and read that story, but uh, Exodus 34. He has to chisel out his own Ten Commandments the next time, his own tablets. They're, they're God's Ten Commandments. But then... He comes back down with the new Ten Commandments in his hands before the people. And his face is glowing so brightly that the people can't look at him. They can't bear to look at him. Because he had beheld the glory of God. And it changed him. And Paul picks up on this and he says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, who's we all? Raise your hand. That's me. That's you. We all, believers in Christ, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. Somebody say amen. Somebody said from glory to glory. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So you know, we don't physically behold the glory of God, but spiritually on the inside, guess what's happening every time you come to worship? The glory of the Lord is being revealed to you. Guess what happens every time you get into God's Word and His Word speaks to you? The sword of the Spirit speaks. You're beholding the glory of God. Amen. Every time you pray and you get in your prayer closet and you feel the Spirit of God come upon you and it rushes upon you right there in secret and the tears fall and, and you realize that He's there with you in your prayer closet, guess what just happened? You beheld the glory of God. And I hope that you would learn to behold the glory so what? You can become what you behold. You'll be transformed from one form of glory to the next. The next level, amen. I want to be there with the Lord at the next level. 
And I don't have time to devote myself to idols. That's why I need to flee idolatry. Secondly, though, the second reason that he gives, not only do you become what you behold, but secondly, what you consume can consume you. And listen, what I want to do here is I want to warn you, just as I believe Paul was warning the Corinthian church, I want to warn you that, that whatever idol, whatever pet sin that you, that you keep and, and that you, you engage in, whatever that is, that you pet it, you love it, you wash it, you clean it, you dry it, you spend a lot of time and energy devoting yourself to it, whatever that is, it's more sinister than you think it is. Because Paul says that, that idolatry is not just about a thing that you set up on the shelf. It's not just about something that's in your garage. It's, just, it's not just about an account that you keep an eye on. It's not just about time that you spend with something or something. It's deeper than that. And, and what he says is these things are animated by the spiritual world that you cannot see. You can't see what's giving that idol life and what's pulling you from the other side of that idol and what's pulling on your heart is demonic. It comes from the realm of the devil. And his desire is to receive the worship that belongs to Almighty God. And so he says, what do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? And he says, no, that's just a thing, right? But what he says is, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I want you to notice the use of that word pagan right there. And what that means is the unbelievers. That means those who are outside of Christ. And what they are devoting, what the world out there devotes to these other things, they're not just wasting their time. They're actually devoting their time and their energy and their effort. They're giving it all to a demon. In the Old Testament, there's the, the same idea in Psalm 106. They're called the Shedim. And that word is uh, translated by the Septuagint as the same word we get demonia from the New Testament. So we're not quite ready for that one yet. Let's back up. I want to hit Isaiah 44 for just a second because I want to, I want to point this out to you. When you take what belongs to God and devote it to a demon you will suffer loss. You're going to suffer. It's going to hurt you. Idols consume. And, and in Isaiah 44, I put this text up here, all who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. And we, we, we think about all all the things that he begins to say about idols, what Isaiah tells the people about idols, is that an ironsmith comes and he works this thing, this metal thing, and he fashions it with hammers and with a strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails and he drinks no water in his faith. Hey man, hey guys, any of you worked real hard, hard days work, you know, put in your 10 hours or whatever it is, and you felt hungry and tired? You grip that hammer so long that at the end of the day you can't open your hand up? You ever been there? I've been there. I've been there gripping a, a fishing rod so hard that later. No, I'm just kidding. I, I used to do construction, so I know what that's like. And I, I remember taking four by eight sheets and lifting them up from the ground up over my head, pushing them like this to the person up there. 
and doing that all day long. And then whenever I get home, I can't even lay down because my back hurts so bad. And this is what Isaiah says. The person that makes an idol, he wears himself out during the day building an idol. And he's faint and he's hungry and he's tired and he can barely rest because he's put his hands to the work of building an idol. He says the carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. Any of you ever done carpentry? Okay, let's see, let's do that again. Any of you ever done carpentry? Let's raise your hand. Now, now hold on, put your hands down. That's about 40%. Any of you messed it up before? Okay, more hands went up. Wow. Okay. You tried carpentry, but you didn't succeed. Okay. So, so you know, it takes mental energy and effort, right? And that's what, the, that's what Isaiah the prophet's talking about. It takes labor. It takes mental energy and effort. It takes resources. And then he goes on to, t- he goes on to say that this person, he, he cuts it and it's senseless because he takes this tree and he, he plants it, he, he waters it, he does everything for the tree, then he cuts it down and he brings it inside, he chisels out the idol, the rest of it he uses for fuel to warm himself, and then he takes some of it and he cooks over it to feed himself, and it's all the same tree. And then then after he gets warm and fed, he bows down and worships his idol. And it makes absolutely no sense. It's a block of wood. And he says to it, Deliver me, for you are my God. Isaiah's conclusion, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? I mean, Isaiah is saying, why don't you have this conversation with yourself? Why don't you talk to yourself about what you're doing? Why are you wasting all of your energy and time on something that cannot help you? Shall I fall down before a block of wood, he says. Verse 20, this is the the state. of This is Isaiah 44, verse 20, if you want to write that down. He feeds on ashes. Now, I've never eaten ashes before. But I can imagine you've got to have some gravy on it to make it go down. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? It's a lie. One theologian put it this way and said, the biggest lie that an idolatrous person will ever tell themselves is this makes me happy. Oh gosh, man, doesn't that hit you? Because we think that whatever it is is making us happy, but all it's doing is sucking the life right out of us. Why is it doing that? Because it is empowered by spiritual forces that you cannot see, and you are giving your life to the devil. The thief comes to do what? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. And don't think for a moment that these same gods that Israel worship, that they bowed down to, that our culture is not doing the same today. And I don't want to get too deep into it, but there's a, there's a great book out there. I have actually in my bag. I'd love to show it to you. Um, but it's called The Return of the Gods. 
by Jonathan Kahn. And, and I, I encourage you to read it. It's a very interesting read. I encourage you to read it. But he, goes, but he goes in the book to say, well, listen, the void that was created by uh, the, the proliferation of the gospel where all of the, the demons were run out, well, that was filled by Christ and the churches were filled with people. But in this postmodern culture, this post-Christian culture that we're living in, we have invited the demons back in by pushing God out of the schools, by pushing God out of our homes, by pushing uh, the, the, the transgender stuff and all of that. We are welcoming the, the false gods back in. That's what we're doing. He talks about Baal, and he talks about how Baal was that, that one God, that one rival God that Israel went, went back to time and time again. Well, Baal was a knockoff God that supposedly controlled the weather, the climate. And if they bowed down and they worshipped Baal, guess what? They'd have a bumper crop, uh, their, their cattle and all that would reproduce, and everything would go really well for the people. And that was the worship of Baal. And here we are, 21st century America, worshipping the Baal. You know what he was represented by? A bull. Guess what's down on, Mar I think it's Market Street, somewhere in uh, New York City? Wall Street? A bull. The God of economic prosperity. And you think that we're not worshiping these gods. Here's another one, Astra. In Greek and Roman mythology, it was Easter or Esther. She was the wife of Baal. She was an adulteress. And she embodied eroticism and everything sexually perverse. She took sex out of marriage. She was androgynous, or may even say transgender, probably more likely. She said, this is a quote from her. She said, I am woman, I am man. You think we're not worshiping these gods today? The last one was Molech. And, and Jonathan, call, Jonathan Kahn calls these the unholy trinity of the Old Testament. And Molech was the god, a, a warring god, but he was also he was supposed to be the god that would protect the people. And you know what they did with him? They went and they took their children and they threw them into the fires of Molech by the millions so that they could have the life that they wanted. They could have security. You think we're not worshiping these gods? In our culture today, we surely are. And Paul's warning becomes even more dire whenever we understand that these gods are animated by demonic forces. So how do they consume you? If you're not careful, whatever you begin to devote your time and your energy and your effort to, you may be devoting to demons. And he says, they consume you. Isaiah says, they consume your time. We read some of that. They consume your effort and energy. Remember, he gets hot and tired and sweaty and hungry. Jeremiah 10.5 talks about how the idols have to be carried. They can't carry you. They have to be carried. What does our God do? He carries us. Amen. Our God takes care of us. And then they consume your family. And I, this is where I want to get to Psalm 106 for a minute. I want you to hear it. This is how idols consume you. 
They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. The Hebrew word is shedim. They poured out innocent blood. The blood of their sons and daughters. Man, is there anything more precious to you than your blood pumping through your body? Save your soul. And, and, and it reminds me, I'm going to stop here for just a second. It reminds me of whenever there was that showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah the prophet and the prophets of Baal. And what did they do? They cut themselves and they bled to their blood gushed out, trying to get the attention of their God that didn't exist. Whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, the land was polluted with blood. Thus they become unclean by their acts and they played the whore. In their deeds, they took what was holy and they gave it to something that consumed them. I want to tell you, thirdly, the third reason Paul offers us is your liberty has limits now. Now, this is really important. I want you to see in verse 23 and following, he has this kind of rhetorical conversation with the people of Corinth because some of these little pithy little statements that they would say, they, they pump them out. And Paul refutes them and he says, this is what they say. They say, all things are lawful. All things are lawful. I have liberty in Christ, right? I can, I can do what I, I want to do. I'm free in Christ. Well, Paul says, don't let your freedom become an opportunity for the flesh. Do you remember that? Right. And then they quote back things like, well, the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the sea and established it upon the rivers. So Paul says, no, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And so when we're considering what we're doing and what we're spending our time and our energy doing, and if we go to that place and we have that question and, and we, we say, is it okay for a Christian to do this? Is it okay for a Christian to fill in the blank, to drink or to smoke? Or to go to a party where they do. Or to get a tattoo. Or to buy a Harley. Or to be out on the golf course. Or to go in a hunt, to be in a deer stand. Or any of those things. The question that we can ask is, does it help? Help what? Does it help the cause of Christ for you to engage in that? So that's a good question, isn't it? And then he goes on to say another one that they say is... Um, well, they say all things are lawful, but then he responds to that. But not all things build up. See, some things, if you did it, and you did it in the right context, the wrong context, you did it in the wrong context, it would tear others down. It would destroy their faith. I'll give you an example. If you, if you invite someone who struggles with alcohol addiction to your home, but you have a full liquor cabinet right there, couldn't that become a stumbling block? And, th- and I believe this has rightly been applied to that particular situation uh, over the millennia. I think Christians have applied this correctly, that we can become a stumbling block to people by the things that we engage in. And maybe that's not our idol, but we can lead others into idolatry by doing it. So your liberty has limits because of that. Well, 
we do have liberty. And Paul says in Romans 6, 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. And you say, well, well, what about my liberty? What about my freedom to do that? I can drink, I can have a beer, right? It's not going to hurt me. It's just one beer and I can do that. Well, you're right about that. But where does it become a sin? Well, it becomes a sin whenever it becomes unhelpful or, or it begins to tear down. Romans, or whenever it clashes with my Christian witness. Romans 6, verse 15, what then are we to say? So he says this in verse 14, but then he follows it up in verse 16, uh, 15, and he says, what then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And then he says, by no means. Mieneto in Greek, which is the strongest way to say no. Heck no. Am I to sin? And then, Paul also says that we aren't even to give the appearance of sin. Not even the appearance of sin. We must be willing to draw the line when our culture clashes with our Christianity in any regard and say no. We can participate in secular activity as long as that activity does not contradict our Christian witness. That means I can go out on the golf course but should I go out on the golf course at this point in time or at that point in time or with that person? I can go fishing, but should I go fishing when I should be doing this? I can be in the deer stand, but should I be in the deer stand or should I be watching that game or should I be doing this or going to that party? Give me another, give me another example. I could go to a ball game. However, if my friends invited me to go to the ball game, as the designated driver because they are going to get wasted and they need somebody to drive home, I shouldn't go. Verse 31 becomes the ultimate test of whatever you do. Listen to what it says. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So here's the test. Can I do it to the glory of God? And you put whatever in the blank. Can I do, draw the blank and put anything in the blank. Can I do this to the glory of God? How do you answer that? Can I read this article? Can I watch this movie? Can I listen to this song to the glory of God? Can I smoke pot to the glory of God? I don't see how you can. Whatever it is, can I do this to the glory of God? And then there is your answer. You don't have to come to a pastor and say, hey, Pastor, is it okay for me to whatever, blah, blah, blah? And I think that's what Christians do. You know what we like to do? We like to tiptoe right on the edge. And what did Paul say in the last passage? Let a man, if he thinks he stands, take heed. What? Lest he fall. Why try to tiptoe on the line when you can be living on the path? And here's, here's my thought. We got to draw the line. But here's the last point. And this is why you flee from the idols. You flee from that line. You don't even get near it. What you pursue becomes your passion. What you pursue becomes your passion. And listen, when you are pursuing Christ, 
with all of your might, you won't have time for idolatry. You don't have any time to waste on things that are less than the glory of God. That's all you have time for. And some of us, we run around saying, I'm just out of time. I don't have enough time. I don't think I can get to that. I don't have enough time. And my thought about that is, if you don't have time, because we all have the same amount of time, if you don't have time for the work of God in your life, then you're wasting your time on things that are not of God. So what you pursue becomes your passion. And this is what we see about, about Paul, is that he is pursuing Christ with such intensity that he could never become distracted by an idol. He didn't have time for that. Now, Paul at one time admitted that he had struggled with covetousness. But that was back whenever he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. Amen? Once he knew Christ and he got on that road with Christ, he never looked back. Let's just finish this up real quick because I know you're ready to go to lunch. He says in verse, he says in verse 31 again, read it. So whatever, whether you eat or drink, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. I love that. Because he's saying, whatever you're doing, if it's offending someone else, you're sinning. And, and, and basically what he's, when he says, don't give an offense, what he's saying, don't be a jerk. That's, how, that's my interpretation. Don't be a jerk. Unbelieving Jews could have been offended by what the Corinthians ate or drank. So they shouldn't do it. Unbelieving Gentiles would be insulted if they didn't go whenever they asked them to come to their, their party or whatever because they were Gentiles or whatever. So you better go. Unbeliever, uh, believers who struggled with either side of an issue, you shouldn't do it if it's going to make someone else struggle with the issue. Right? So don't be a jerk. Don't make someone struggle. But instead, let this be your motivation, he says. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. Why? Read that last part with me. What's Paul's motivation? That they might be saved. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 11, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I wonder, could you say that? Could you testify with, with Paul? Listen, if you follow me, guess who you will be following? Can you say that? You'll be following Christ. Paul had three motivations. This was his pursuit. Number one, the glory of God. That's his pursuit. I want to see the name of Jesus magnified. I want to give glory to God, the one who saved me. Then, secondly, the pursuit of the, of the, the pursuit of the good of the church. Now, he said not all things are helpful and not all things build up. Paul was all about helping the church. Paul risked his life for the church on multiple occasions. Paul could have turned away from persecution, but he turned to the church where he knew that he would be persecuted because they needed him. And Paul's motivation was the good of the church. And some of us, I mean, hey, we'll come as long as the game's not on. Or we'll come as long as the fish aren't biting. To whatever it is. The good of the church. And then the gospel of salvation. He wanted people to be saved. 
When you're pursuing Christ, you won't have time for idolatry. And let me tell you this, when you're pursuing Christ, the more you pursue Him, the more you'll want Him. I remember dating Allison. And she didn't know I was going to use her as an illustration, so I hope that she doesn't get mad at me and divorce me after this. But we're, <clears throat> we may need marriage counseling. But I remember dating Allison. And the more time I spent with her, and it's still, it's still this way, the more time I spent with her, the more I wanted to be with her. I think that's the way a good, good marriage should be. And some of you say, well, oh, no, we need time apart. I don't feel that way about Allison. I mean, some of you folks that have you know, been married for 50-plus years, maybe you can say the same thing. That's the way your marriage is. You just want to be with each other. And the more you spend time with each other, the more you want to be with each other. You don't get tired of each other. Allison and I was riding the car for eight hours and still just enjoy holding hands and talking and not getting tired of each other until I say something stupid. And then she's ready to kick me out of the car, but, which I do sometimes. But the more you pursue Christ and you set Him before you and you're beholding His glory and you're pursuing Him, the more you do that, the less time you'll have for anything else. You won't want any of that other stuff. You won't want any of those idols. You'll just be like Paul in Athens and you'll look at those idols out there and they'll just provoke your spirit to witness and evangelize and to go for the glory of Jesus Christ, your Savior, to anyone who will spend time listening to you until they get sick and tired of you hear them talk about, hearing you talk about Jesus. And that's the way it ought to be. If you pursue Him, then you'll set Him before you. You don't have to worry about idolatry. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If the Apostle Paul were here today, this is what he would say to you. He would say, if you don't know that Jesus that he knew and you're not pursuing him with all your heart, you are devoting your life to something that will ultimately destroy you. It wants to take the life from you, not give you life. But Jesus, on the other hand, he gives life. And he's willing to give you that life today. Life abundant and free here on this earth, and life eternal and glorious with God above in heaven. And that life can, can, be, can begin right now. And if you'll repent of your sin, you'll turn away from your idolatry, and you'll turn toward Jesus, and you'll say, Jesus, I, I know that you died for me, and you are the Lord of all. I give my heart to you. If you're willing to do that today with your head bowed, your eyes closed, I'm not going to make you raise your hand or anything. Just right there on your pew, right there where you are with the Lord Jesus. He's here. He's present in this place. He promised to be here. And if he's tugging on your heart, this is how you should respond. Just say this prayer in your heart. Say, Jesus, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. I've done things I know are wrong. I failed to do what I know is right. And I deserve the penalty for my sin. But Jesus, I believe that you lived a sinless life. That you died on the cross for my sin. 
the third day you were raised again and you're alive and you are on the throne above. So Jesus, I ask you to forgive my sin. Make me a new person. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I want you as the Lord of my life. Jesus, thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for my salvation. Now I'll spend the rest of my life loving you and serving you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? We're about to sing our hymn of invitation. This is your opportunity. That if you prayed that prayer in your heart, for you to come and share what Jesus has done for you. We have much to give you and much to encourage you through. So let the church know what Jesus has done for you. This is also your invitation that if you, like so many of us, if you've been struggling with idolatry, you've been devoting what belongs to the Lord to a demon, to something that's less than worthy, for you to just simply come and and pray with some of our altar counselors or pray with me, I'll be here. And we're just going to pray that we could be cleansed of idolatry. Flee from it right now. Don't go home to it. Flee from it right now and say, no more will this have control over me. And get rid of it. I can see idols right now in your hearts just toppling over and being broken to pieces as you devote yourself to the Lord. And if you know that Myrtle Grove Baptist Church is the place where the Lord has called you to love and serve Jesus, but you've yet to join, this is your invitation to come and join our fellowship as a full member in the faith. So you come as we sing together. Sing, I surrender all. Give it all to Jesus. So long.